So Denise and I met our freshman year of college, and uh, from, from right at the beginning, we were good friends. And, uh, but call me slow, it didn't dawn on me until the end of our junior year that I should actually ask this beautiful woman to be her boyfriend. But I didn't ask her. I waited a whole summer, went through all that, thinking, does she like me, doesn't she like me? You know, picking the daisies off the, right? And well, anyway, beginning of our senior year, I asked her to be my girlfriend, and she said... <laughs> She said, what took me so long? She said that, actually. <laughs> so she said, yes. So all senior year we dated, and we got to the end of our senior year, and we were very excited because we knew that we were supposed to be married. And we had a great relationship. We were excited about it. And we wanted to get married, but there was a problem. The problem was that both she and I had signed up to go on and get graduate work, which would mean we spent two years apart. She was two years in Texas, I was two years in Cincinnati. And this was a time when phone had just come down in price to 10 cents a minute. Imagine, 10 cents a minute. So we called twice a week, every Wednesday, every Sunday we called, we wrote a lot of letters. And uh, I was just looking forward to getting married, but I didn't have Denise there. So what I did have though, which kept me going, was this. You didn't know this, didn't, nobody told you from the first service, right? I bribed them, I bribed them. I had this picture, this is what kept me going, was I would look at this all the time because there she was in her 80s shag haircut. <laughs> and that kept me going. Today we're gonna look at the book of Colossians again, chapter two. And in this chapter we're going to get to see what the Holy Spirit led for Paul to tell us. You see, there are some teachings that crept into the church that was meeting in the city of Colossae. And Paul, though he had never been there, he got word of it and he was very concerned. And so he, he wrote this letter to them and today we're gonna to get to look at that. So we're gonna pray first. You open up in your Bibles uh, to Colossians chapter two. We're gonna to pray together and then we'll look at what the Holy Spirit has for you and me today. Let's pray. Oh Lord, please open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear, open our minds to perceive what you would have for us, and open our hearts that we would not just hear, but apply, hear and be changed, hear and fall more in love with you, Lord. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen. Amen. Well, there were many things that started to influence this church. One of them was that there was a, a contingent of Jewish believers in this church. Now, this is in, Colossae is located in what is modern-day Turkey, sort of mid-eastern Turkey. So it was mostly a Gentile church. But there was a, a Jewish group, and this Jewish group started to press the Gentiles and said, you know what, it's great that you believe in Jesus, but if you really wanna be a complete Christian, you have to come through the Jewish law. So the Jews started to press upon them that they needed to obey the dietary laws, that they needed to obey Sabbath laws, that they even needed to go so far and, and be circumcised in order to be a complete Christian. 
Well, another influence that came to this church was from the present Greek philosophy. Uh, We've all heard the term Gnosticism, and this was just in the developing stages at this point. But the basic teaching here was that anything spiritual is good. Anything physical is corrupt. And so you could see how this would cause a real problem for the doctrine that Jesus Christ is God who is good in the flesh, which is corrupt. This was a very difficult thing for them to to understand. And so because God is good and spiritual and we are corrupt, well, there must be something in between us. And so there are beings that are a little less good than God. And then there are beings that are a little less good than that being and so on all the way down to our corrupt nature. So we can't actually worship God directly we have to worship God through angels or through these, what they called intermediary beings, all right? So we can't worship God, he's too holy, so I have to worship angels instead. And that's what another teaching that was going on here. Well, also part of this Greek philosophy was the thought that since the, since the, um, the body is evil, in order to really have a spiritual experience, I need to suppress the body. And when I do that, I will gain some great wisdom. Some uh, mysteries would be revealed to me if I can keep my body down and punish my body. And so that began to develop this, this early idea of asceticism. We have here on the left, this was a real man, though we don't have a photo of him because this was about 400 Uh, AD. Uh, His name is Simeon Stylites. He was a Christian ascetic and uh, he lived most of his life trying to beat his body down so he could have a better spiritual experience. His final act really was to decide that he was going to live on top of a pillar. The pillar was about 11 feet by 11 feet and he would stay there and he did that for 37 years. He never came down. He was fed by, they were hoist food up to him, little by little, but there he was, totally exposed to the elements for 37 years. On the, on the right, we have uh, what's called the, the um, I forget the name of it, but it's basically the Holy Stairs. And um, what this is, is supposed to be the stairs that Jesus walked up to get to Golgotha. It's now in Rome. And what people do, this is modern day, what people do is they crawl up these stairs on their knees in order to punish themselves. Because in punishing themselves, they will be, they'll be putting down their physical and exalting their spiritual and have a better spiritual experience with God. And so that is a modern form of asceticism. Now, I have not seen too many of you lined up at synagogue for circumcision or for for going to to, uh, uh, any of the services there. I don't see any of you trying to live up on a pillar in order to gain some spiritual experience. But as we look at what Paul defines as the, the, the... wrong teaching that was coming into the church, 
I think we will see some strong application here for us. And so we begin by looking at chapter two in verse eight. We're going to jump around this chapter and then I'll read the whole thing together afterwards. Verse eight, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of the world rather than on Christ. So stating the obvious here, Paul is saying that there is something that has crept into the church that is deceptive. It's deceiving. And this deception has several characteristics. One of the characteristics is that it's based on human tradition. Human tradition is a good thing. Now, I'm, I'm a traditionalist, okay? I, I, I'm guy, I like tradition. I'm not very sentimental, but I do like tradition. We live in a time right now where things are being thrown out just because they're tradition, without any thought. If it's traditional, throw it out, get rid of it. But that's wrong in itself. But Paul is really warning us here that there's a danger of the other going the other way. You see, scripture is alerting us to the fact that human traditions can actually hold us captive. Hold us captive. Well, how does it do this? It does this because my heart is so easily deceived that I can think that doing a human tradition any tradition, you name it, that doing that somehow earns me extra points with God. That by doing this traditional thing, I'm going to be in better standing with God. Making it worse, I could actually think that it's better than I was before, or even worse yet, that if I do this tradition, I'm better than you because you don't do this tradition. So it can actually hold us captive now again, tradition can be a beautiful thing, right? The Lord uses traditions at many significant times in our spiritual growth, and that's a wonderful and great thing, but we have to understand that the Bible says it can be dangerous. Now, I wanna point out that he's talking about human tradition, not biblical teaching. So this is where I wanna just make a, a, a point. An example of this would be the Lord gives us the, the command to be in church, that's why you're here. That's why if you're watching online, if you can at all be here, you should be here. Because the Lord says don't forsake the gathering of the brothers and sisters together in Christ. And so we make the effort to come here and be together. That's become a human, or I'm sorry, that's become a biblical tradition. But what is human tradition in that is how we do that the furniture that we have up here or don't have, the clothes that we wear when we come, the times that we meet, how we do what we do, those are human things. And scripture is saying we need to be wise enough to understand the difference, that we must focus on what God has said and then the other traditions, we need to examine before throwing them out, but we also need to examine before continuing them. Are they meaningful? Do they still hold what they meant back then as they do now? And are they still important to us? So it's important that we understand that this can be a deception and traditions can hold us captive. The second thing that Paul leads us to is Call, he says it's based on human tradition or on the basic principles of the world rather than on Christ. It literally means the ABCs of the world. 
So this is talking about things that, that range from, from how the world works, the, the rotation of the earth, the movement of the planets and the stars. And tied along with that, it's talking about astrology and talking about horoscopes. It's talking about uh, the, the evil forces behind human philosophy, human government. It's talking about what lies in us even, just that natural bent for us to think, somehow I can be good enough to earn eternal life. These are the basic principles of the world that he's talking about here. And he's saying it's deceptive if we look at things that are just tradition or based on these human principles of the world. And these human traditions are found in rules. He says, therefore, let no, or no one is to act as your judge in regard to food and drink, in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. You see, the deception in these things comes in that I might actually think I could earn my way to heaven by doing them. That's why, where it becomes dangerous. So let me just talk here very quickly about Sabbath. Sabbath is a big thing. And we in this church are a long history of, of obeying the Sabbath. We would, we would talk at that. But we, we understand, we have to understand what scripture says about the Sabbath. First of all, if you want to celebrate the Sabbath, you should do it with joy in your heart and thankfulness that God has given you the opportunity to do that. It's a wonderful thing. But we understand from the Old Testament that Sabbath was on a Saturday, first of all. But again, you can choose. You want to pick a day, Sunday, Saturday, you could do that. But Sabbath was given for the Jews. See, it was part of them being separated from the world. It was part of their identity that they were not going to work seven days. But on, the, on one of those days, they were going to stop and have a special focus on God. It's also because it was a, an act of for them to trust the Lord that even though I'm only working six days, Lord, you are providing for me. But the Sabbath was given to the Jews. See, the Sabbath was never given to the Gentile nations. They were never punished for not obeying the Sabbath. Only the Jews were because it was a specifically a Jewish thing. And then by the time Christ comes, he is teaching ultimately that he is the Sabbath rest. Jesus himself is where we find our rest. And Paul actually says that we are New Testament people, New Covenant people, and so that these things, the things of the Old Testament were a shadow of what was to come. Now hear me, I am not diminishing the value of the Old Testament. We take the whole counsel of God, Old and New Testament. No part is better than another. It is all God's word. But we understand from God's word that the Old Testament was proclaiming the reality that was to come, and that is Jesus. And the truth is that God wants more than your Sabbath. God wants every day from you. He wants every moment of every day. You see, he is jealous for your love. He's jealous for your attention, and he won't settle at just a Sabbath. This is where the Jews got in trouble because they celebrated Sabbath. They were okay. They, they did what they were supposed to do, but it didn't reach their heart. Their heart was that God wanted them every day and every moment. 
The problem is when we begin to expect others to do the same as we do. So, for instance, I follow the Sabbath, so I will get puffed up because I want to, you know, because I'm better than you because I follow the Sabbath. And then that hurts my relationship with you because you're not as good as I am, so I think. And then that gives me a false security that somehow I've earned something with God. Again, you want to follow the Sabbath? Do it with joy in your heart. You want to follow the dietary laws? Do it with joy and thanksgiving. You're missing out on shrimp, but you can do it. But that's a human tradition now. That is no longer the biblical tradition. And so so we're not obligated to that. What's scary about this really comes in verse 20 when Paul says, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why as if you were living in the world do you submit yourself to the decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? You see, what Paul is saying is that if we actually are thinking that somehow we're going to get something from this, we put ourselves in a very dangerous place. So traditions and the, the basic principles of the world, following them, obeying them, adhering to them, can actually put us in danger. In danger. Because it isn't really addressing the heart. So I want to come back to, to my opening here. You see, two years after this, Denise and I got married, June 28th, 1986. Yes, men, I remember the date. I, I haven't always gotten it right, but I remember the date. And on that date, from that date on, what if I was living with Denise, but totally ignored her and just talked to this beautiful picture and tell her all my deepest feelings and connect emotionally because that's what she likes and kiss her? You would say I was insane, wouldn't you? Yes, because I've got the real thing over here and she's beautiful and I'm looking at this. And that's exactly what Paul's talking about here. I would leave it up, but I know she'll yell at me for leaving it up, so I'll put it down. That's exactly what Paul's talking about here. He's saying, you have Christ in front of you. What are you wasting your time on Sabbath, on, on dietary laws, on human traditions? Christ. Christ, he is the reality. He is the substance. Believer, come out of the shadows. He says, he actually says, he said, these things are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Come out of the shadows. Leave the things that don't mean anything and get back to the source, Jesus. He is the only one. Another deception that comes from, from this is the tendency to elevate those who delight in, it says here, uh, who de- are delighting in humility and w- the worship of angels, taking a stand on visions as he has seen and inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. We have to be very aware of, of anything that is self-exalting. 
If somebody tells you that they have reached a spiritual height because they've given something up or because they deny themselves of something, be very aware of that. We tend to do that with missionaries, don't we? We think, oh, they've given up all this stuff. They must be really spiritual. You talk to a missionary, they say, we're no different than you. We're no different than you. We also have to be aware of those who say, I have all I have because of my faith in God. In fact, because of my faith, I, I can trust that I don't have to get sick and I will be given anything I want because I'm a king's kid. Dangerous gospel there. And I think even more dangerous is what, what I call the American gospel, which is now to say that uh, as long as you follow biblical principles, your life's gonna go okay. So, and, and there's truth, right? There's truth in this. If, if I am a, being the husband the way the Bible says I should be a husband and my wife the way the Bible says she should be a wife, it's probably gonna go better than if we don't. If I wanna be a biblical husband and act the way the Bible says, or a biblical father, act the way the Bible says I should act, I'm probably gonna have a better chance at being a good father. But if I stop there, I've missed the point. The point is Jesus, right? And this is where, where I'm concerned about our churches because so many churches now are just preaching, just follow the Bible and, and the hope is they don't tell you this. Well, just get them in the Bible and eventually they'll become Christians. The point is we need Jesus. That doesn't tell me that I'm a sinner. That doesn't tell me that without Jesus, I can never follow the biblical principles. I can't do this unless he has gotten in me and changed my heart. And so, so this is a concern. It's a very dangerous thing. We need to be aware of people who say they've gotten special messages from the Lord or have seen visions. He says that here, uh, taking a stand on visions he has seen. When you read the book of Colossians, he's, he's pointing up this, this difference between what was seen and what is taught. What was a vision and what was instructed. You see, it doesn't sound as glamorous, but it's rock solid. What we have has been passed on to us from the apostles to the next generation, to the next generation, to us, eventually down to us. That may not be as glamorous or as glitzy as a vision, but it's the truth. And it's how the word is passed and it's how instruction in the word is passed. What we do here on a Sunday morning, what you do in your small groups, what you do on one-on-one -on -one discipleship, that's the magic. That's the magic. That's where it comes in. That's where we are taught the words of Christ. And beware of codes. These, these people who get into numbers and... and uh, you know, special codes in the Bible. Uh, this is where the Masons got off. This is where Harold Camping got off. The Bible is not trying to hide a mystery from us that only certain people with certain knowledge can get. The Bible was written to reveal the mystery of God to us. The Bible is revelation. It's, sometimes it's hard to understand. We have to work at it. I'm glad I have to work at this. If it was easy, it wouldn't be worthy of my time but this is revealing who God is and what he has done for me. This brings us to our central teaching of the passage, which is found in 9 and 10. For in Christ, all the fullness, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. 
You go through Colossians and take your pencil and circle every time the word all is used. You will be amazed. In Christ, all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. His bodily form didn't detract from his holiness as God. No, in fact, his bodily form actually reveals how great his love is, that God would become a human in order to save you and me, because without him doing that, he could never have saved us. He became a human, he became flesh. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the form of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, Christ is the fullness of God, and in that fullness of God, he came as a human and died on the cross in order to reach you and me because without that, we would be stuck in our sins. Our sins would keep us away from God. He loved us too much to leave us there. And so he came and gave himself up. And so because Christ in his fullness has come and has given us that opportunity to receive him, when we do receive him, we are made complete in Christ I love this. This says we have been made complete. Okay, grammar Nazi. Past tense or present tense? Past tense. We have been, we've already been made complete in Christ. It's not, I'm sort of complete now, but I'll be more complete later. I've been made complete in Christ because he, in all his fullness, dwells in me when I receive him as my savior. All his fullness dwells in me. Believer, we have everything we need. We do not need a second blessing to have a fuller gospel. We do not need a special vision to have greater purpose. We do not need a secret code to have more understanding. We do not need more rules in order to be more righteous. And we certainly don't need to be listening or putting our trust into somebody who claims they have those things. We don't need anything more than Christ himself. We can depend on him. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, it says in chapter two, verse three. Do you want to be wowed by great wisdom? Do you want to be dazzled by some philosophy and discover the, the riches of some mystery? We have it. We have it in Christ. Let us be wowed and dazzled by him. He is what we need. How does that completeness come to us? It comes to us because in him we were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, remember we're talking, Paul is writing predominantly to a Gentile audience. Most of these men were not circumcised in here. And he's saying, if a Jew comes up to you and says, brother, in order to be a complete Christian, you need to be circumcised, you tell him, I already was. You see, I was because when Christ came into my heart, he cut off my sinful nature. Now, you and I are very good at resurrecting our sinful natures, aren't we? right? But Christ cut off our sinful nature. That's what resurrection in the Old Testament was supposed to be anyway. The Jews trusted in it as just as a sign, but the physical circumcision was, was meant to be a 
picture of what was taking place in the heart, that God was cutting off the old nature, taking away the heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. And so, so we have this, this teaching of, of resurrection, or I'm sorry, of circumcision, that it was meant as a, a sign for the Jews but you and I, you and I have been through baptism, the sign for New Testament believers. Through baptism, we show that Christ has died and was buried and rose, to, rose again. And that when we identify with him in baptism, we are identifying with his complete work. That Jesus died for our sins, he was buried, and he was resurrected to conquer the grave. You and I as believers have been identified with that. We have been given that kind of fullness here. That's the symbol that we have. Now, we don't need circumcision anymore, but baptism. Now, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh or in your sinful nature, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. He has forgiven us all, there's that word, all our transgressions. Do you get this? We've been given a complete salvation because he has forgiven all our sins. Completely, our sins are gone. And he did this by canceling out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against which, uh, I'm sorry, the decrees against you, us, which was hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way. I love this image. Here's the image that Paul is setting up. He says, you go, you stand before the judge, and you say, you know what, judge? I did some bad things, but I'm basically a good person. So you should just let me go free. And the judge says, just a good person, let me, let me check the records. And he pulls out the records, the long list of decrees against me. Ah, oh, yeah, remember that time you used my name in vain and all the other times, the time you lied, the time you lusted, the time you hated, the time you didn't help? It's all listed here, John. It's all standing against you, crying out against you. And it says here, that Jesus on the cross canceled it out. And the word there literally means erased, covered up with his blood. He covered it, it's gone. And then he took that paper that's standing between me and God and says, you know what, we don't even need this anymore at all. And he sets it aside, it's gone. That paper is no longer between me and God. I'm reminded of the Old Testament at the first murder when Cain killed his brother Abel and the, the Old Testament describes the, what's happening here and it says, the blood of Abel is crying out against you. What was that blood crying out? Murderer, guilty. Brothers and sisters, the blood of Jesus cries out for us and where it should and could cry guilty, it cries for you and I are forgiven by the blood of Christ. And he did that by nailing it on the cross. It says he nailed that decree on the cross. And then not only did he do that, but when he, did, when he was on the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them, over them through him. See, the cross wasn't really just about forgiving me. 
or forgiving you. There's something amazing that happened here when Christ went on the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's talking about Satan and his, and his powers. Satan has been disarmed for believers. Do you understand that? We need to stop giving the enemy credit for this and that in our lives. We do not belong to the dominion of Satan anymore. We were that when we were in the uncircumcision of our flesh, but now we belong to Christ. We're in the dominion of light, the dominion of the Son of God. And in that dominion, all of Satan's weapons have been taken away from him. He has nothing on us. He has nothing. He has been disarmed by Jesus. Now I know the Bible says that the enemy prowls around like a lion seeking to devour us, but he can only do two things to us. He can tempt us and he can make us afraid. Those two things. And those two things, you and I have a part in, don't we? You and I decide whether or not we're going to give in to temptation. And you and I decide whether or not we're going to give in to fear. See, Satan has no power over us. We are freed from his power. We have complete victory. So we have complete salvation in Christ. We have complete forgiveness in Christ. And we have complete victory in Christ. Now, what I'd like to do is actually read this passage as a whole. I'm in Colossians chapter two, in case you're still looking for it, starting in verse six. And I'm reading from the New American Standard. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith just as you were instructed, there's that word, as instructed, not as you've seen, but as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is head over all rule and authority." And in him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh or in the sinful nature, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against you, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, having triumphed over them through him. Therefore, no one, no one is to act as your judge in regarding to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement or in the worship of angels, taking the stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause, 
or uh, yeah, without cause by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head, that's Christ, from whom the entire body, that's us, being supplied and held together by joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion, self-abasement, and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. In Christ, the fullness of God lives in bodily form. There is nothing missing. In Christ, we are made complete because he dwells in us. There is nothing missing. We have been given a complete salvation complete forgiveness and complete victory. And because of his work and what he has done, there is nothing else we need but Christ. So beware of that that natural tendency to think, I've got to do more. I've got to be more. I've got to find more. I've got to listen to more. What you need more of is Christ. Christ is all and in all. And he is all that we need. And so follow, to him, follow him, cling to him, abide in him, hold on to him. And, and the greatest mystery that we can understand is what Colossians says in chapter one, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That is the greatest mystery. Let's stand together now. As we depart, as we leave now, I want to just speak this over you from the book of Colossians. I pray that you will leave here continuing in your faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard was proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Would you go in that strength now today? Amen.